think if I didn't have a social component to my work, if I didn't feel that my work was raising awareness or um, trying to help heal a sick society, I don't know if I do it, to be honest. I don't know. I think that that's why I do it. Yeah, I don't think I've ever made a piece that's just for any other reason. I think that there's always, it's either healing for myself or it's healing for others is the intention. That was artist Thomas Chung. Thomas says that he's always been interested in art, even as a child, but that as he got older, it became a means of self-preservation. His upbringing was marked by racism and homophobia, and art allowed him to express the emotions he didn't consciously understand at the time. Those emotions, he would later realize, focused on cultural awareness and compassion, and would come to define much of his professional art. In addition to being an artist, Thomas is also an assistant professor of art at the University of Alaska Anchorage. There, he continues to champion diversity, equity, and inclusivity. So here he is, Thomas Chung. Welcome to Chattermarks, a podcast of the Anchorage Museum, dedicated to exploring Alaska's identity through the creative and critical thinking of ideas, past, present, and future. My name is Cody Liska, and I'll be your host. So I did some internet sleuthing, and one thing that stuck out to me was that you've moved around a lot. You were born in New Jersey, you grew up in New York and in Hong Kong, and you went to college at the San Francisco Art Institute and then at Yale. Was all that moving around a symptom of necessity or was there another reason? Yes, it was a symptom of necessity. If I had things my way, I would have been like married at 17 and never left anywhere. But I think I've moved over 15 times in my life so far. Um, It's just sort of circumstantial, um, partially. I, in my early life, I grew up in suburban New Jersey in a town called Mountain Lakes that until the 1960s had an informal whites only policy. And my family was one of the few non-white uh, families in town. And when my oldest sister was 17, I'm the youngest of three, my parents realized that there were some really severe psychological issues happening to me and my sisters because of being in the extreme minority. And so my mother was working in advertising at the time. And so they had global offices and she thought it would be a good idea for us to connect to our Chinese heritage. And so she was able to move us to Hong Kong for four years while I was in middle school. And it was interesting because she brought us there in an attempt to, um, kind of help her children find their place in the world Mm -hmm. because it had been very difficult in that town where, you know, I heard stories of crosses being burned on people's lawns. And, you know, my friends were taught to cross the street if they saw a black person. Um, It was a really pretty tough place to grow up in terms of what kind of a worldview that creates. And so we went to Hong Kong and ironically enough, it was even worse because Hong Kong is a post-colonial territory. And so we went from feeling like subhuman in New Jersey to feeling like somehow even worse, like less than human in Hong Kong, because there was this really rigid hierarchy where the British were on top and anybody that looked Chinese was like not even a human being, it seemed. How do you think that that affected you and your siblings growing up? Well, I know that it's made the biggest impact on me, I think. Um, I It was hard. I mean, honestly, the places that I lived in my early life, they it seemed like hell, honestly. I used to ask my mother why she had me. I didn't really understand what the point was in existing in a society that was so antagonistic mm-hmm. um, or the, that seemed that way. Um, I I look back on my life now and it was extremely difficult. Like in high school, I had attempted suicide several times. Um, it was a combination of feeling worthless for not being white and also feeling worthless for being gay. It was sort of, I'm intersectional. And um, 
Uh, but the thing is, now that I'm 32, I look back and I'm actually grateful for these experiences because uh, I'm not alone in feeling sort of at odds with society. I'm not alone with sort of hating the part of me that caused me the most suffering, my race, my sexuality. And now that I have a little bit more maturity, I realize that it's only through that suffering that compassion can exist. Mm -hmm. And I... You know, I'm really passionate about diversity, equity, and inclusion work. It's something that I have a large role at at the university, and it's a huge aspect of my art practice as well. And so um, I just think it's effective our world. And so I'm grateful that I wasn't sheltered from it. I'm grateful that it didn't kill me. Um, and I feel like there's important work to be made um, and important awareness to spread about you know, different aspects of the minority experience still. We're at an interesting place historically where for the first time there's this opportunity and this interest in equity where there's not this hierarchy of, um, you know, of people and cultures that we're starting to uh, respect non-Western cultures and non-Western voices and non-white voices. And so, um, I don't know, I just, I feel like the difficult experiences that me and my sisters dealt with growing up, I think that it's the reason why we're more compassionate people now. So I don't know. I, I don't think that um, negative events in this world happen in isolation. I think that it's really limited to think that way. And so um, I am at a point in my life now where I'm seeing things a little more holistically. Do you ever feel a responsibility to represent your experiences in order to make other people maybe with similar experiences feel less alone? Yeah, I, it's funny, though, because I wouldn't call it a responsibility. I would say that it's, um, it's a privilege mm -hmm. that I'd say that that's been the most fulfilling aspect of my career when I can deliver a lecture that focuses on self-inflicted racism. And I'll have people come up to me after and tell me how close to home the talk hit. I, I tell my students that you have an option as an artist. You could be making work that's, um, you know, not going to ruffle feathers. You could be making work where you're comfortable in the whole process. But I try to show them examples of artists that attempted impossible feats, that tried to shift culture or tried to depict God or um, just some of the highest attempts that an artist can make. And uh, in terms of subject matter, I don't know, my life experience and my interest in, um, in race and culture and society, it's, I'm, I'm happy to, that I'm happy that my practice seems to have a relevance beyond art. Mm -hmm. I'll put it that way. One thing that you mentioned that I was wondering if you could explain more was self-inflicted racism. Yeah. So, um, I was lucky. I was the last graduate school lecturer at the San Francisco Art Institute, my alma mater, before they closed uh, last spring. Uh, and, um, you know, it was really important to me that that talk focused a lot on self-inflicted racism. And I talked about my dad's experience in this country. My great-grandparents and grandparents immigrated to America, all of them as refugees of war. And the only way they could survive and thrive in this country was to assimilate. And so by the time I was born, there was no Chinese language that was passed to me, no Chinese stories, no connection to that part of our heritage, um, because that was just how we were going to succeed. And um, at the same time, though, like I had mentioned before, the minority experience can sometimes feel like you live in a society that is actively against you. And I showed images at that presentation of um, Mickey Rooney in Breakfast at Tiffany's. It was a movie from the 60s mm -hmm. um, and one that uh, an example of what cultural images of Asian men there were in America at the time my dad was growing up. And I used the image to explain that my dad hated being Chinese because of course you're gonna hate the thing that causes you the most suffering. 
And it was the same for me. By the time I was born and was dealing with sort of pop culture of the 90s, they were no longer putting white actors in yellow face like my dad grew up with, uh, but they were casting Asian men that fit the stereotype so that they could perpetuate it. And um, I like talking about, or it's important to me to raise awareness about self-inflicted racism because I don't think that it's talked about a lot or understood very much. And the only reason why I'm aware of it is because it almost killed me mm -hmm. because it was such a huge force in my life that it, I would prefer to be dead than deal with it. Um, and what it basically is, is racism is not just something that happens to oppressed minorities. It's also something that very commonly becomes embodied by those minorities. There's an example that I can give you where my middle sister works with uh, decolonization programs in Hawaii. And something that's quite common is there's a negative stereotype that Hawaiian, native Hawaiian men are lazy and worthless. And my sisters told me that the women in um, Hawaii sometimes perpetuate that. So they will actually tell their husbands, you are worthless and you are lazy because they've embodied it somewhat. And so I think why it's important to me and why I think it'll always be an aspect of my work is it's such an insidious uh, form of social control. Mm -hmm. And it's so deceptive that I think most people don't even know that they harbor those kinds of feelings. And I think that it is very closely related to the idea of soft imperialism, right? So that is the promotion of preferred culture through pop culture. Yes, exactly. But like I said earlier, though, um, a big aspect of what I do now is I lead a lot of the initiatives for diversity, equity, inclusion work at UAA. And so I'm really excited to be alive at this time where mm -hmm. there's this whole global shift where for the first time ever in history, we're seeing the opportunity for inclusivity, where it's not like what my great grandparents had to do. You don't have to totally cut yourself off and deny your, your cultural heritage anymore that there, there's an opportunity for equity. Do you have any examples of this inclusivity that you're talking about right now? Yeah, so I spent the last uh, couple of years creating a GER requirement at UAA. So all future students in order to graduate with an undergraduate degree uh, will have to take courses that relate to topics, uh, relate to diversity, equity, inclusion topics as a way to round out their education and make sure that they have a cultural awareness uh, with that degree. Mm -hmm. Because I don't, you know, I, I encounter a lot of racism in my life just because of the way that I look. And honestly, a lot of that is not coming from hatred or anger. It's coming from ignorance. Mm -hmm. And so uh, the GER requirement is one example of just something that I hope can make a dent in future generations. If, you know, if they didn't grow up around ethnic minorities or people that are different from them, maybe having to take courses like a women's studies course or an Alaska native history course might give them some perspective. Yeah, for sure. You know, circling back around to your, your travels, were you creating art during all of that <laughs> moving around? Uh, so I, the first, I've always kind of been drawing since I was a kid and making art. Uh, but when I was in Hong Kong for middle school, uh, I, that was the, around the time where I was coming out to myself and kind of dealing with the and having to accept the fact that I couldn't be who my culture wanted me to be. I couldn't be who my family wanted me to be. And I couldn't even be who I wanted myself to be admitting that I was gay. And art making was seemingly the only thing I could do about those feelings because being in the closet is a very peculiar psychological situation where the issue is kept hidden from your conscious to some extent. And so it's agonizing, like you're being ripped in half. And I started making art making as self-preservation. Mm -hmm. um, and so it was making art that was expressing those emotions, even when I didn't even consciously understand them. And even though nobody saw that work and it didn't do anything, it was enough just to be able to do it. There was something cathartic, almost like an exorcism. And it's still, my art still functions that way as like sort of psychological release or psychological kind of um, 
it almost feels like psychological completion too, that once something is externalized in an artwork, it's no longer inside as much. So um, I started doing that in Hong Kong and why I got into art was just a ceramic sculpture I made caught the attention of my art teacher at the time and she was really excited about it and no one had ever shown that kind of enthusiasm for anything that I had done or at least um, not with as much personal resonance to me. So I just kept doing it and uh, I just, I it was a really hard time in my life. I was eating lunch alone in a bathroom stall and just going to the art room. And um, it's that's a big reason why I teach art and why I wanna be there for my art students too, because I understand what a powerful healing mechanism the process can be. Mm -hmm. And I don't ever diminish it to anything simpler than that. I'm really honest with my students about what I think art is and what it can do. Could you give me an example of how you would talk to a student in that way about the importance of art? Sure. So one of my students uh, this semester was really interested and inspired by action movies and anime. And uh, sometimes I'll have students that are um, satisfied in kind of recreating what they're inspired by. And so the conversation I had with this young man was, you can still be inspired by your influences, but your art could, can do more. That mm -hmm. we live in a time where there's no longer any rules, that your artwork can be funny, it can be sexy, it can be scandalous, it can be angry, it can be all of those things at the same time. And so why wouldn't you? Why would you shoot for something? that is shallow or superficial when you can be making work about what concerns you most. I have my students make a list, beginning students, what is the funniest thing you could possibly think about painting? What is the scariest thing you can possibly think about painting? What is the most meaningful or beautiful thing that you could think about painting? And then what is a painting inspired by your outside interests? And to me, those questions get at some of the deeper levels of who we are and what we can express in art. Um, so that's, a, that's some of what I say along those lines. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I also tell my students that art is useful as art therapy because it's nearly impossible to lie when you're creating artwork. That's why it's so effective as an art therapy. And so art is possible of containing paradox art can be thought about as sort of visual poetry. And so this, this might be uh, useful for, to answer your question. One of the assignments that I give to beginning painting students is I have them pull a painting style like impressionism or surrealism um, out of a hat, their little slips. And then the other hat they have to pull out of has verbs. So the verbs are like comfort, antagonize, disturb, evoke nostalgia. And that lesson explains to my students that any verb you could enact on another person, your artwork can enact on a person. Mm -hmm. And I think that that gives them an idea somewhat of the versatility and power of the messages that they could give through that medium. Do you think that those experiences from your past have helped inform your worldview? A hundred percent. Yeah, a hundred percent. And not only that, but it informs my teaching. Mm -hmm. So all the lessons that I had in terms of, um, you know, public controversy, it becomes lessons for my students. All of the hard lessons that I've learned about cultural appropriation, I pass those on to my students. It all, um, basically, I'm of the worldview now that, suffering can be transformed into something greater if you could use it to help others. And if you don't, it's just suffering. And, you know, for a while, I uh, spent a long time being quite upset about suffering in general in the world. It bothered me. And, uh, but now I think that there's a function or can be a function. So I try to do that. I try to not kind of wallow in self-pity. I try to be open to what lesson is contained in any in anything and i had a dream once where a woman was uh, cooking a dish a food dish in the kitchen and she was explaining to me all the different steps and every step she explained was a metaphor and a lesson for life 
And that dream has always stuck with me as being very uh, profound because I really do believe that everything that happens to us, no matter how horrible, is something that we can learn from. Do you remember if there was a moment that that shift occurred where you stopped kind of, you know, wallowing in in self-pity? I think it's just been recently. And I think it's just as my life has begun to settle somewhat, um, there was just so much suffering and pain built up from my adolescence that it took maybe 15 years to kind of work itself out through my system until I was able to make work to talk about something else besides that pain. Um, and it's been really interesting because, uh, I don't know, it's, I'm seeing a side of my artwork now, like I've in recent years, I've basically dedicated my life uh, to Buddhism somewhat. Mm -hmm. I'm following my mother uh, in that. And um, I think that that's been a big shift as well. But I honestly just think it's a product of getting older and, um, I don't know, just having some distance between some of these events. Do you think that those experiences have informed your artwork? Which experiences? The the historical ones that we were talking about, the same ones that have informed your worldview. Yeah. So I always tell my students that they need to figure out what they what means the most to them. Because mm -hmm. the best art is gonna be the art that comes from that place. And I give them that advice because it's advice that I apply to myself as well. And um I think if I didn't have a social component to my work, if I didn't feel that my work was raising awareness or um, trying to help heal a sick society, I don't know if I do it, to be honest. I don't know. I think that that's why I do it. Yeah, I don't think I've ever made a piece that's just for any other reason. I think that there's always it's either healing for myself or it's healing for others is the intention. You know, I think that there are probably a number of different types of artists, but in my mind, there are kind of thoughtful artists that really put so much of themselves into each piece and is able to look back on that piece as this time capsule that was able to kind of encapsulate all of these different feelings and then convey them in a certain way. And then there are other artists who are like, oh, I don't know, I just made it. Yeah, exactly. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. And I have students that run the whole gamut, but students that are happy or not really um, kind of pull, unraveling that sweater thread and seeing how deep their explorations could go. I think they're just, you know, I think they're potentially missing out hmm. on a practice that could be more meaningful or fulfilling on all sorts of different levels. But, you know, art is a billion different things. It's, it's different to anybody who's engaging with it. How would you describe your art? I would describe my art as, um, I, you know, it, for a while it really surprised me how angry my art was because I don't think of myself as an angry person. Um, now it's, there's, I would, I would say it's intense. I would say that they, um, I would describe my art as psychologically intense. I don't, I don't even know anymore, really. You know, that my ancestors in China on my mom's side, they were oracles. It's why my middle name is Pu. It's, that's my mother's maiden name. And it's the Chinese characters derived from the cracks in a tortoise shell that uh, Chinese oracles would put in fire and they'd interpret those cracks. And that's what my middle name, the Chinese character is. And even though there's been this total severing from my Chinese heritage, I still really believe that the paintings that I do are in line with that ancestral history. Just because I don't plan my work, it's a conversation between me and the piece, and it's I never really feel like I'm totally in control of what the piece is or what it's about. I don't even know what they're about mm -hmm. a lot of the times until later. 
Um, and then, you know, most recently I did a mural for the Anchorage Museum and Julie Decker asked that it be about climate change. And that was the first time that it actually felt like somebody was asking me for an oracle, mm. asking me for a message on a topic. Um, and I felt quite connected actually to my ancestral history when she asked me. You know, that's really interesting because I had a conversation with my mom probably about a month ago where she said that she listened to an episode of the podcast and she was like, oh, that was a really great question. And we got down this kind of stream of consciousness, like line of thinking where I'm like, you know, sometimes like when I am having a conversation and I'm present and, you know, I'm right there in sync with the other person, sometimes I'll, I'll ask a question that I didn't even know was going to come out of me. You know, that it was just like, um, I mean, it's almost like a spiritual experience, you know? Oh, absolutely. And it's proven that when a human being begins a sentence, we don't know how it's going to end. Mm. We like basically jump off a cliff and just hope it lands somewhere. And the art making process, I think when I'm doing it right for me, I feel like I'm tapping into a similar space. remember maybe the last time that you're working on a piece of art and you look down at a certain point or maybe you just become more cognizant of what you're doing and you're like oh wow I didn't even know I was doing that <laughs> well you know part of what happens in my work is um, I I grew up steeped in the materialist worldview that all of existence is just an accident and nothing really means anything. And my artwork is the stage in which the spiritual side of myself fights against that materialistic worldview. So um, there is this fragmentation in my mind where um, I will be shocked that a painting seems uh, more relevant than I could have planned. Um, or shock that it seems to be depicting an event that's happening in the future. And then basically, I oscillate between <laughs> just thinking that it's all in my head mm -hmm. and that everything's all just an accident again. And then I, then I will, in another moment, feel that being able to make art is the most magical thing ever. And so sometimes the work really seems like a force of nature. And I can appreciate it like that. And then other times I hear society's voice that devalues art and I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> you have that, that classic artist self-doubt. Oh yeah. And I tell my students, they have to fight against a culture and a society that actively tells them that it's a pointless endeavor mm -hmm. or it's not, you know, it's not worth investing in. And in the same vein as self-inflicted racism, I have to let them know, you know, that will creep in. Even if you are an artist, even if you choose to dedicate your life to this, you can't help but let some of that cultural sort of sentiment creep in. Yeah, you have to be very strong-willed and stubborn <laughs> <laughs> or egotistical <laughs> true yeah <laughs> i you know when i was in undergrad i had lofty dreams of you know being in the art history books and showing at the met and the moma and no i don't want any of those things um my practice has become very much more of a kind of spiritual practice i guess isn't it interesting how much different the reality always is from the idea. Oh yeah, it's nuts. And you know, I was grateful that I got to go to Yale for grad school for many reasons, but one of those was I got to peek behind the curtain. Part of the reason why all those dreams died is I realized that I don't think they would be fulfilling mm -hmm. in the way that I thought they would be. Um, there's, you know, at least in New York, you know, it's a whole art market 
And I, you know, I was just giving away work in grad school. I still don't know how to price and sell work because to me, money is so not the point at all mm -hmm. that it's confusing to me to have to think about it that way. How often do you think your art achieves its intended goal? That's what's kind of silly about art baking is uh, it's rare to know what kind of an impact your work will have. Mm -hmm. But I think I guess that's very human that we rarely know the full effect of our consequences, the consequences of our actions. I mean, if you think about that one guy in China that set off the coronavirus, um, there's, you know, innumerable events like that happening all the time that are not as obvious. I tell my students that if they're making work that's important to them, that is most likely going to be the work that's important to their viewer. Even if the viewer doesn't understand where they were coming from, you can still tell when a work is honest. And so I'd say that when I can look at my work and it feels honest, that it's it's done its job. And what kind of effect that would have on a viewer, though, that's beyond any artist's control. I will say, though, that uh, when I have... People tell me that it's the coolest thing they've ever seen. That makes me really happy because <laughs> that's kind of always the, the one of the aims, I guess. I'm always trying to make something that's visually the most interesting thing I could be making for me. Um, so that's one thing that is satisfying with work. And then, like I said, having the opportunity to talk about the work is very fulfilling and i think that the work achieves its aim when i'm able to educate people about topics like self-inflicted racism and colonialism and decolonization um, that to me uh, the work gives me that excuse to be able to advocate about these things mm -hmm. you know so i have this question kind of written further down in my notes but i i feel like it fits really well here so i wanted to talk to you about your painting titled everything Sure. So for those not familiar with this painting, it depicts Chris Evans, who played Captain America in the Marvel movies, holding up the severed head of Donald Trump. Why did you name it everything? <laughs> so, you know, it's funny because that I'm the least political person I know. I've been telling my boyfriend I can't wait until I never have to think about politics again. But as I explained to you, I care deeply about race in this country and culture. Mm -hmm. And... So um, at the time of the 2016 election, when Donald Trump was elected president after talking about Mexicans as, you know, rapists and, you know, after just spreading xenophobia and racism and misogyny and then being supported by, you know, so many Americans, it kind of broke my heart because I just I thought we had come a lot further as a country uh, culturally in terms of these issues. Mm -hmm. And um the title everything was basically the the feeling of that election that it seemed to cover everything in terms of what i was upset about in this country or feel like uh, is an issue culturally it was hitting sort of misogyny it was hitting racism it was hitting xenophobia it was just triggering all of these things for me uh, and so it just honestly just felt like literally everything, mm -hmm. uh, everything in which was at stake was exploding. And so why Chris Evans? <laughs> well, <laughs> you know, I, for a long time, I, uh, I bashed consumer culture. I thought that American consumer culture was flimsy, superficial, and didn't have its people, uh, its best interests at heart because that was my experience growing up in this culture. But my attitude on that has changed. And I actually think that our consumer culture serves the same function that any historical culture would have in terms of stories, heroes, archetypes, um, you know, role models, things of that nature. And uh, Chris Evans standing in as America to me seemed relevant and also him as a white male ideal seemed really relevant as well that all the people that were hot topics in the, that election were white um and so the painting is 
sort of Chris Evans uh, holding Donald Trump's head and then a young Hillary Clinton is helplessly sort of clinging to Chris Evans' leg. And the whole thing is happening in front of a buffalo fall and next to a dead buffalo that has the graffiti uh, that has graffiti painted on it that says make America white again, which is what people were vandalizing um, on buildings after Trump was elected in 2016. And um, the whole painting is basically my reconciliation with the fact that I thought we'd come a lot further as a culture in terms of equity, but the whole country is founded on genocide. So why would I be surprised? And that that's kind of the overall point of the image. You know, I kind of want to delve into the pieces of the image just for a second. Sure. And I guess my overall question is, did you have this global idea of all of these set pieces in this piece or did they come up individually? Um, it was a little bit of both. All my paintings uh, are a little bit of both. So I remember sketching out the two eagles on his shoulders, uh, but things, minor details, I think, came in just have in conversation with the piece. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if I had planned the buffalo fall from the start to be the background. Um, I don't know if I, I don't think I had the graffiti either. I think that while I was painting the news stories about the uptick in hate crimes and uh, sort of vandalism was being reported. Um, so small details are being worked out. But yeah, the, the overall image will kind of come to me and then the details work themselves out while I'm working. And that's pretty consistent throughout your art. Yeah. So the pieces that I hate the most are the ones that go exactly as I thought they would from their conception to their completion. I hate those pieces. You know, this reminds me a little bit of, I've read a lot about different authors' writing process, and some of my favorite authors will kind of sketch out these these characters like okay this is where the character will start but then those characters throughout that writing process will continue to surprise them you know the decisions and the choices they make because they have created this life of their own oh absolutely and that's something that i've heard from mask makers up here in alaska too that the masks are considered alive and i i very much consider the artwork that i create alive in that way almost having its own sense of agency uh, where what you want for the piece is not necessarily what it wants or what's best for it, which mm -hmm. is, uh, I don't know, I find that fascinating. So one more question about everything. Mm -hmm. Correct me if I'm wrong, but my first thought was, okay, it's obviously provocative. What was your original goal with that piece? And do you think that you achieved it? Sure. So the funny thing is I never set out to create shocking images, believe it or not. What I sit down and try to do is I try to make the most meaningful image to me. Mm -hmm. And that just happens to exist usually at the edge of acceptability or taste or, you know, just at the edges. And it makes sense to me because why explore anything that's not at the edges? of culture mm -hmm. or at the edges of thought. And I think that that's why I get into a lot of trouble. And it's funny because my work is controversial uh, in different arenas. Like I spent grad school defending my work against very politically correct far left people. And then with the everything painting, I was inundated with hundreds and hundreds of death threats from the far right. <laughs> so in my mind, it's sort of like my work exists at these edges and that makes people feel uncomfortable. So I did it for me. Um, I did it also as my protest. I didn't participate in the protest marches and Chris Evans is holding a protest sign. And if I did protest, that's what the sign I would have held. And it's a quote from Chief Seattle. And it says, man did not weave the web of life. He's merely a strand in it. Whatsoever he does to the web, he does to himself. And that's an excerpt from his speech when he had to give up his lands to the United States government. And he asked them to love it as much as he did. Mm -hmm. And so I, I think that I achieved what I wanted to because um, in a way it was my protest. And so the fact that it was seen by probably over a million people I think that my protest was heard. I know that I'm not the most graceful artist and I'm definitely made a lot of mistakes. Uh, 
but I I wouldn't I wouldn't do anything differently. So a lot of your art shines a light on social injustices and inequalities, things like cultural appropriation. How do you think something like cultural appropriation is harmful? So what's funny is I don't actually take on cultural appropriation in the work too much, but it's something that I've been accused of. Um, you know, the one piece where I did take it on, I had um, a painting where there was text in it that said Jimmy Durham is Cherokee and then it was crossed off and it says Jimmy Durham is white because Jimmy Durham was uh, one of my art heroes growing up and then it was found out that he had been pretending to be a native artist his entire life. And he um, wasn't a native artist. he was not, no. Huh. Um, so that was that's one instance of me sort of nodding at those issues. Um, and you know, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt, but that I, I had wrote this down earlier because you'd mentioned it and it was so interesting to me. And what you've just described is almost literally the opposite of this. And it is that success was achieved by abandoning your culture and heritage. So that's kind of how you grew up and you saw your father abandoning you know, his culture and heritage. And then now here we are with this, this artist who is adopting culture and heritage that is not his. Yeah, it's, it's tricky. Basically my thoughts on cultural appropriation, and I will be honest in saying that it's been the most emotionally difficult part of my career, Mm. having to feel these accusations because a lot of the work that I've been accused of as examples of cultural appropriation, they were illustrations of stories told to me by my native friends when I first moved here. And there's something really sad to me that, like I understand why the concerns are raised. There's this history and present of sort of inequality for native people. And so of course there's going to be sensitivities and protections around native culture and art, but it was just, it was sad to me that I created those pieces out of collaboration and kind of love for Alaska native culture. And so that it was sad having people tell me that I'm profiting off of native culture or that I have no right to engage with these images. Cause in my mind, me depicting a native story doesn't take away that right of a native artist to do the same story, but that's not how a lot of people feel. Um, and I, I, I respect where those feelings come from. Um, but it just, it, it saddens me. I just hope that one day our cultures in this country are seen as having true equity because then these issues no longer exist. You know, the idea of cultural appropriation only exists because we have this concept of privilege and a hierarchy of privilege that it's by definition, it's impossible for, say, a native person to appropriate white culture because of the perceived hierarchy and where they sit on that. And so I tell my students to be mindful of these issues, to be respectful uh, because of the history uh, and for many other reasons. But I also let them know that this concept of cultural appropriation relies on a system of race and culture that is a lot more rigid than I believe it to be as well. Because the question that I always ask is, you know, I'm a gay Asian man, where exactly do you place me on that pyramid of privilege? And I think that that where you place me is different depending on who you talk to. I think it's subjective. Mm -hmm. But anyway, I, I've come out of the, all of the lessons that I've had with cultural appropriation, I'm grateful that I can teach them to my students. So one of my students had an interest in Clickit Forum Line. And so I consulted with Maria Williams, the former chair of Native Studies at UAA, um, to see what would be the proper way for her to respectfully incorporate Clinket Formline into her painting. And the answer was that she could reach out to do an apprenticeship to receive the proper training um, so that she would have the proper context and understand uh, sort of what she's doing. Mm -hmm. To accurately represent it. Yes, to make sure that she's accurately representing it because um, with cultural appropriation, the only tried and true solution is collaboration. Do you think that cultural anthropology has influenced your work at all? Oh, yeah. 
Yeah, so when I was in high school, I was able to take some cultural anthropology classes at Brown University. And then when I was at Yale, I tried to take as many anthropology classes as I could as well. Um, my interest in culture is inseparable from my interest in art. Mm -hmm. um, they, they are completely intertwined. Um, and I guess the most fascinating thing, I think, when any, with an, any anthropology student is that moment when you wake up to your own culture. I think that that's one of the most valuable aspects of an anthropology education is you wake up to something that you've been largely blind to. Uh, that culture is almost like the water that a fish swims in. Mm -hmm. And so to be able to clearly see uh, what's influencing you from your own culture, whether positive or negative, I think is very valuable. Was there a moment when you woke up to your own culture? Oh, yeah. So when I was in graduate school, I, I was awarded a travel grant to spend time in the Amazon basin. Um, I was so disillusioned with feeling like everywhere I went, it was Western culture and this racial hierarchy, no matter where I went, even if I was in China. And so I went down to the Amazon basin, basically to tr attempt to triangulate human nature. I wanted to meet people that couldn't be further from Western culture just to find out, do they also think that white people are better? <laughs> Is that just, yeah. you know, human nature? Um, so an unexpected aspect of that trip was I spent uh, time with cultures that had unbroken shamanic traditions. And one of the shaman that I met at this village, I asked him if I could ask him some questions. And he was like, no, no, no. Anybody that finds me is here because they need healing from me and you are going to be my patient. And so he forced me to take ayahuasca every day for two weeks. The first day that I took it, I thought I was going to die. I was uh, thought I was transforming into an eagle, that my jaw was being ripped open and I couldn't breathe. And there was these three shaman blowing smoke in my face and singing into my ears. And I honestly thought I was going to die. And this holographic person starts to appear in between me and the shaman. And I was told that every vision you have in that experience is very sacred. And the person that solidified and appeared just like a Star Wars sort of, you know, that hologram was Angelina Jolie in the 1995 movie Girl Interrupted. Mm -hmm. And she looked at me and smiled at me with her sexy, dangerous Angelina Jolie smile. And I instantly felt better. And I remember laughing, laughing at that moment and thinking, had I grown up in this village, I would have been visited by, you know, the star twins or the cosmic serpent. But because I grew up in suburban New Jersey, I'm being visited by Angelina Jolie. And it was this revelation because it wasn't diminished. There was nothing to me weaker about that archetype appearing for me rather than something, you know, that's a thousand year old myth. Mm -hmm. and that was the turning point where I was actually able to see both sides of the culture I had inherited. Has that experience continued to affect you in any way? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, on a couple levels, I mean, Angelina Jolie appears as a motif in my work really often, probably because of that experience. So one of my most recent paintings is another depiction of her. Um, but I think it's just, it's a worldview. It was a worldview changer. Um, where I just think it informs everything that I do and how I think about uh, culture. I try to look for, I guess, where the power and the truth still exists despite the, you know, the commerciality, despite the implicit bias. Mm -hmm. So when you look at older pieces of art that you created when you were younger, do you think that they are different or similar than the art you create now? They're similar in the fact that they're, they've always been catharsis. There was um, a video game that I played every day for four years and I made a painting of the main character and then I never played the game again. And that always stuck out to me as indicative of the process itself, that somehow it's like a mental purge. And so when I was a teenager, I made all this work about being afraid of dying of AIDS because I was gay, because that was sort of the cultural messages I got from my society and my family. So it was just painting after painting of beehives and bees. Somehow those started to stand in for AIDS. And um, 
the work was simpler. It was, there was a lot more pain that needed to be expressed. Right now I'm using my artwork to help me understand really abstract Buddhist concepts. So my mother runs um, the Nyingma school of Tibetan Buddhism. She runs all of their activities on the island of Honolulu. And so I, I participate really actively and there are these huge concepts in Buddhism that you have to grapple with and understand on an experiential level, things like everything's impermanent, um, the concept of rebirth, things like that. And so my paintings these days have actually been attempts to uh, work myself through these really foreign concepts. And so there's still a lot of pain and anger in the work too, mm -hmm. um, but this is distinctly different now. Uh, I'm actually planning and hope one day to do a show of what I see as kind of American Buddhist paintings together. So I have one more question for you. Mm -hmm. So when you're teaching students, what is it that you hope they learn or they experience? Sure. I hope that they understand the potential that art has um, on a couple different levels, but most importantly, I want them to understand how healing it can be for them. That even if nobody sees their work, even if nobody likes their work, it can still, you know, it can still save your life. Mm -hmm. And uh, the other thing I want them to know is to not limit themselves. Like we're at a time in the history of art where there are no closed doors. If you were an art student in the Renaissance, you would be so limited in what you could paint and how you could paint it. And now there is literally no rules. And so I want them to know, you know, if there are no rules anymore, why would you put rules on yourself? And I basically try to broaden their definition of what art can be. It can be the funniest thing that you've ever seen. It can, you know, aggravate your viewers more than anything they've ever seen. It can be beautiful and spiritual and disgusting at the same time if it needs to. Um, you know, it can hold paradox. I, one of my assignments I gave the advanced painting class was actually an impossible painting. I told them to come up with an idea for a painting that you could not possibly succeed at, like depicting God or showing the meaning of life through an abstraction. And the beauty is that even though it's impossible to get there, you can get further than you could possibly imagine. And that means something. For more information about the Anchorage Museum, visit anchoragemuseum.org. This podcast was written, hosted, and produced by me, Cody Liska, for the Anchorage Museum, with additional help from Julie Decker. Music was produced by Keezy Baby.